Oh yeah, I'm really glad that you're not with him anymore because he didn't like my Instagram aesthetic. What are you doing here? Why don't you take this bottle and go to bed? Paradiso. Welcome back to Cinephile Paradiso. It's episode 11, so it is. My name's David Charles Collins, and you know yourself, I'm here with your man, Quaid Kirchner. Quaid, how are you? I'm treating! <laughs> I'm very good, thank you. I have left my Irish accent at the door with my good leprechaun friend, Mr. <gasps> McQuaid. Your accent's actually not half bad. It's a lot better than your Afrikaans accent. Sure, if you weren't sitting around all day pulling your Mickey, you'd be able to do one as well. <laughs> oh my god, David, stop. It's getting a bit hot and sweaty in here. I do have, I do love an Irish accent. Oh, thank you. How's your week been? It has been eventful. I'm ready for tonight. Oh, wow. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's been eventful in preparation. Yeah, definitely. I've been committed to the task ahead. And to an asylum. An asylum? I wouldn't say an asylum, I would say a prison. An institution? Let's go with institution. Absolutely. Absolutely. Quaid, what's the theme for the week? Well, I don't... <laughs> no, no, no. <laughs> I, I, I don't know. I think the theme for tonight is uh, uh, Northern Ireland. <laughs> was that an accent from court? <laughs> Sebastian the Crab. <laughs> no, it wasn't, man. That is... <laughs> but no, the theme for tonight is Northern Ireland. <laughs> I feel like whenever I try to do an Irish accent, it sounds like a pirate accent. Like, I am your hearty. It's a hard one to do. My really good friend back in Perth, shout out to Braden Short, he did a very, very good Irish accent whenever he would say the Joker lines from The Dark Knight. Really? He'd be, I, I'll try to, uh, I need to, I need to get him to record it so he can send it to me and we can put it on one of the episodes. But he, he did it in quite a high pitched tone. He would say like, it's simple, we kill the Batman. <laughs> like he's from Limerick. <laughs> like he's from Limerick. Ah, oh, sure. Why um, are you so serious? <laughs> I feel really bad if there's any Irish people that are listening and are offended by our, I mean, half-ass attempts at the accent, please let us know. We You're entirely no welcome to try an Australian accent. We can compare notes. G'day, governor. <laughs> David looked like he was about to choke on the coffee he was drinking. I feel like we're getting very off topic. So yes, the theme for tonight is Northern Ireland. I don't know why you didn't just write an island in general. You did a, a bigger focus on Northern Ireland. You know why, why was that? There yeah. was a reason. Um, the main reason was because when we were writing the themes, I had just seen the film Belfast being advertised. Oh, of course. And ironically, we didn't pick... That is one of the films, so... We didn't. No. Not at all. Should we go through what films we were thinking of picking? Absolutely. Okay, I have a confession. The, I The film that I actually picked was the one and only film I thought of because it's weird how the world works. I'm going to call it synchronicity. I'm not going to call it the universe because I don't feel like the universe works in our favour. Or maybe fate. Should we call or, it Jesus? No, I think it was just some synchronicity. So, have you heard of Imprint Entertainment? No. They release a lot of movies oh, that have. haven't had like a Blu-ray release before. Okay, and so, they were doing a Jim Sheridan box set release and it was having like four of his films in there. And one of the films had caught my attention, you know, a few months ago. And then... When you picked that theme out of the glass vase last week, I straight away knew, okay, I want to do that film. Perfect. So, yeah, and what about you? What 
films were you thinking? Well, again, I thought Belfast because yeah. I thought it being advertised. Also, I, I mean, another reason I made it wasn't that wasn't the only reason that I wrote that on a piece of paper. I think that the relationship between uh, Northern Ireland, uh, the Republic of Ireland, and the Great Britain in general is very rich territory for films to be made. Of about. course. So I, I thought that, you know, that might be a good reason to look into some and maybe discover some more, which the film I ended up picking it was quite a formative film for me. I feel like I saw it when I was a teenager and didn't really understand the you troubles. A, wait, you were a teenager in 2005? Yeah. Anyway, moving on, um, not to put you on the spot, but... Can you tell our listeners a little bit about the history between Northern Ireland and the IRA, which stands for the Irish Republican Republican Army? Wow. Okay. <laughs> um, I didn't know that this was going to be a history podcast. But no, I, I feel like it's important because this okay. is a major theme right. within the Northern Ireland theme in both of these films. Okay, so here's picked. some dot points that I might cut out if I get it wrong, because apologies, I understand this is a very sensi sensitive sensitive issue. Wait, I didn't know why I'm suddenly calling to you. Sensitive, my boy. I understand it's a very sensitive issue, and if I don't treat it with the nuance that it deserves or get everything right, I'm sorry I'm an Australian. I've never been to Ireland. You've never been to Ireland? Never. I'm so excited. I'm going for the first time to see Ireland in January, February. Yeah. So, uh, the relationship with the IRA. Well, the occupation of Ireland by the English go way, 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 way back, like way back, like hundreds and hundreds of years. But the contemporary, I guess, lens to look through it for is probably when the English came over and started taking all the good land away from... From Ireland. From the Irish, yeah. So yeah. the English went there, they took... And the English and the Scottish came over, the mm -hmm. aristocracy and those with money, and they forcibly took the land from the people that were originally there, yep. who mostly identify as Catholic. Yep. Now, uh, the English were Protestants or Church of England, because that is what uh, King Henry, the whichever, the one that wanted to chop his wife's heads off and get divorced. Question, then what happened to the Catholics in England? Did they just disappear? Uh, I mean, Guy Fawkes tried to blow up Parliament and get rid of the royal family. Um, it's incredibly complicated. It was a case of, you know, swear allegiance to the new Protestant faith or go fuck yourselves. But, I mean, that, that in itself is a huge separate issue. Got you. And then Northern Ireland, they were more in favour of English occupancy? It, it, or? No, they weren't in favour of it at all. But because there were... Um, so, the English are very good at colonisation, as we know. and What? Really? Stealing <laughs> land and plantations and then making money off yeah, the land. Of course. Belong to the people. They did exactly the same thing in Ireland. Now, I cannot remember the name of the area, but it was up in the north. There was a majority area where there were these plantations, so a lot of people that owned land up there, which meant that there were more Protestants, English, and Scottish up there, mm. or Irish as well, that identified as Protestant. After the famine, the Irish, or the Catholics, got pretty much got jack of this because they could see there was a lot of food being produced, but it was being shipped off to the rest of the world and not being used to feed the people of Ireland because the rich people just wanted to make money. Um, this caused tension, civil unrest, yada, yada, yada. So which side of Ireland was in favour then of this? Well, there was no in favour, but there was majority of the educated class and the people that had money because the lands and means to make money had been taken away from the Catholics or the indigenous Irish. Yeah. So the IRA were a, I'm probably going to say this wrong, I think they were the group that tried to fight for the independence of, of the yeah, Catholics. Yeah. And Sinn Féin was the 
political section of that group. They later on went to split, I think they split or they didn't see eye to eye and then there's different versions of the IRA as well. So it's incredibly complicated, but from the English perspective, the IRA were a more of a guerrilla um, terrorist group, group yeah. rather than a freedom fighting army. Yeah. Um, and it is true that a lot of people did die because of what they did, but- But vice versa also. Well, yeah, a lot of people also died at the hands of the um, British military. So it's deeply complicated. So there was, so was there civil unrest in Ireland itself though? between the north and the oh south. Oh my god, absolutely. And that was why. Because that's the bit I'm why? still confused about. Yeah. <laughs> um, oh, that's god. why I said was one side more in favour of English occupancy. It wasn't that was in favour. So you know that Ireland is two different countries. There is the Republic of Ireland, which is... Yeah. Northern. No, darling. It's the south. Oh. So it's sort of from around Derry is the section where there's the sort of the division. So is the IRA, they came from originally the south then, if they're called the Irish Republican Army. Yes, though there were members obviously who were in the north that wanted yeah, but independence joined, yeah. for that part of yeah. Ireland. I didn't realise that Ireland was two different countries. Yeah, so Northern Ireland is a country... So Even back then when the IRA were happening in the 70s? Yes, whereas the Republic of Ireland is the south, which is part of Europe. Oh. That is predominantly Catholic. And it's that still now. And it's still to this day. So where's Dublin? Dublin is the capital of the Republic of Ireland. So south? Yeah. Oh, and then what's like the capital of Northern Ireland? Belfast. Oh, and still to this day. Oh. So top English, bottom Europe. Don't say English. I'm sure there are people that will have issues with saying that it is England because England is not. Well, no, it's not England, but it. Yeah. Whereas the South is European. Yeah. Also, maybe Southern Ireland is more interesting to visit than. Oh, both are incredibly rich and interesting, and I it's like just. Yeah. It. Okay, and that's always been the case. The two different countries. No. When did they split? <laughs> you are really, really testing my brains right now. So oh, you're so smart and oh, intelligent. God. <laughs> you can you can cut some of this out. It's fine. Okay. Petition of Ireland was the process by which the government of the United Kingdom of Great Britain and Ireland divided Ireland into two self-governing sections, Northern Ireland and Southern Ireland. It was enacted on the 3rd of May, 1921. So 1921 is still relatively recent. Well, what film should we review first? I think that if we talk about your film first, it'll contextualize my film a little bit more because I feel like your film focuses on the politics, whereas my film focuses on a personal journey of someone with a background of the politics that influences their life. Perfect, okay, I'll go right into it. Dive into it, darling. That I chose was In the Name of the Father, which was released in 1993 and directed by Jim Sheridan, who I mentioned earlier. So it is based on the true story of the Guildford Four, four people who were falsely convicted of the 1974 Guildford pub bombings, which killed four off duty British soldiers and a civilian. The film focuses on Jerry Conlon and his father Giuseppe and their journey from imprisonment to freedom with the aid of solicitor Gareth Pierce. So this story, well, I shouldn't say story because it's, it happened. It's a true event. And, but the film itself, the screenwriters took inspiration from the autobiography by Jerry Conlon himself, Proved Innocent, the story of Jerry Conlon of the Guildford Four. So some interesting facts. Obviously, Daniel Day-Lewis plays Jerry Conlon and his father, Giuseppe, is played by Pete Postlewaite. Postlewaite, I've met Postlewaite. You've met him? Yeah. Where? Well, in high school, my drama teacher was friends with him, so we- No. Yeah. No. Yes. What? Mm -hmm. And he was in Australia, well, Perth. 
Yeah, he was doing a stage play at the time. We got to go meet him backstage after seeing his performance. Are you joking? Why would I joke about that? Oh, well, that's that's amazing. Anyway, so some fun facts about the film. In preparation for his role, Daniel Day-Lewis lost 30 pounds and Jesus spent Christ. nights in the jail cell on the set as crew members threw water and verbally abused him. Well, I don't know if he needed to do that. Yeah, I know, it's just, maybe you can just act. I don't know. Yeah, just, just pretend it's the job. Yeah, just pretend. Sorry, um, that's, I'm sorry to all the method actors out there. And despite playing father and son, Pete Pothewaite was only 11 years older than Daniel Day-Lewis. No shit. Which is really strange because the age gap does seem quite huge. I don't know if it's makeup or skincare routine. I don't know. There were moments where Daniel Day-Lewis, especially where they were talking about him as a young fella, I'm like, how young is he? He looks like a man in his mid-30s. And they're like, oh, he's so young. I'm like, am I young still? Well, no, he definitely, because I think... He aged into the role. I think... As in, like, when when the later part of his I know, but Jerry Conlon, at the time of his conviction, I'm pretty sure he was only 21. No, I know. That's so he I mean. definitely... Daniel Day-Lewis did not look 21 no. at the beginning. There's, like, no way on earth. He but looked, we, we he looked su- like a good 30. We could suspend disbelief for the performance. Oh, well, yeah, because the performance is phenomenal. I mean, it is Daniel Day-Lewis. I don't think anyone expects anything less. Um, and another fact is Daniel Day-Lewis kept his Northern Irish accent on and off the set for the entire shooting schedule. That I understand because it's very hard to go in and out of an accent when it's you're acting. It's also such a yeah. nuanced accent as well. And one it was, it was. So many people have such an ear for... I can imagine that that would be difficult to go in and out of. Also, I'm not Irish. I can't hear Irish accents accurately. Maybe he nailed it. Maybe he infuriated people. I guess we'll never know. Well, yeah, exactly. And I guess going back to episode six, this film is quite heavy because it's a it deals with a real life situation where you do have victims at the mercy of political injustice. So I do apologize if this comes across as um, lighthearted. That's not our intention. But I don't know. I just want to like pay respect to the victims, to the four that were like sentenced and that had to, you know, be in prison for 15 years for something they didn't do. So and also all of the other victims during this, the victims that died in the incident. Yes, also, of course. But also all of the victims that were wrongly imprisoned during this period and that are wrongly imprisoned because judicial systems and police officers have been debtors or prejudices and just want to sweep things under the rug. There are so many examples of that. There is this story. There is also, I don't know, just off the top of my head, the West Memphis Three. three with yeah, I've heard of that. There are, there are so many situations where the police just wanted to wash their hands of something and tidy up nice, neat ends, and they've got preconceived ideas of who should have done it, and those people end up getting locked away for very, very long, like, huge chunks of their life. Yeah, so the names of the four victims that were sentenced for life imprisonment for the Guildford pub bombings were Jerry Conlon, who we've been speaking about before, Paul Hill, Carol Richardson, she was only 17 at the time, and Patrick Joseph, Paddy Armstrong. I I mean, it's such a devastating story, and even while watching the film... I could not believe that something like this had actually gone down, how the police were physically abusing and coercing these people into lying. Like, it's just, it, it was quite terrifying. I mean, not not that they wanted to lie, but because they were being abused so badly, they had no choice but to sign these papers saying that, you know, we were responsible for the, the bombings. It, it, it happens a lot. I'm not going to mention the person's name for anonymity, but I went to university with someone who went to jail for, I think it was 20 years because he was a drug user he lived down in albany yeah where we're from and a woman was assaulted and murdered and the police just picked him up and abused him and bribed him with drugs until he wrote 
a confession saying that it was him. And years later, thank God, someone came through and proved that he had nothing to do with it and that the police had fudged the whole thing. But that's relatively recent as well. Like, this sort of thing happens it, all it, it, the it time. It does. Like, and I, I think, like, just watching it... I mean, I know that this is a movie, so obviously it wasn't as intense as what probably did happen. But, yeah, I just can't believe that they spend all this time charging innocent victims rather than actually finding the real perpetrators. And I think it's in the middle of the film, you do eventually find out who the perpetrator was because he approaches Jerry Conlon and his father, Giuseppe, in the jail cell saying, hey, I was responsible for those bombings. I orchestrated them. And I'm sorry that you guys got pulled into the mix. The police knew who it was and before the police... they were sentenced. Yes, before exactly. Before they were sentenced. So, or, no, sorry, just after they were sentenced. But it pretty much immediately. Yeah, because during the initial court case, Jerry Conlon had provided an alibi to where he was at the night and time of the bombings. And the investigators, the police, they did actually speak to this person who was a homeless man named Charlie Burke. And the solicitor who ends up getting on board with this case finds evidence where she finds this paperwork of the alibi statement. On top of it is a post-it note that says not to be shown to the, to the defense. So they pretty much this whole time were covering this because they wanted to give, I guess, the English populace a face to hate. And also they wanted to be glorified for their actions because they had well, they, found the perpetrators they, even though they hadn't. But they also didn't want to be wrong. You, once you sentence someone, you don't want to come out and say, oopsie doopsie, we know we got a confession out of them, but turns out that it was somebody else. Don't ask any questions. They just thought, right, let's just sweep this under the rug and hopefully they rot in prison and this is something we never have to face. Yeah, exactly. And all that Jerry Conlon was guilty of at the time, and I guess why him and his three other friends were easy scapegoats was because they had... Well, not they. Jerry had recently moved from Northern Ireland to England and he was living in a hippie com commune where obviously, you know, they're taking drugs um, because Jerry was having issues getting money well, making money, I should say. There was one night where he stole from a sex worker money while she was out of her house. So yeah, he was an easy target. And the reason why him and his three friends got roped into this mess in the first place was because one other person in the hippie commune had an issue with them because they were English, obviously Jerry is Irish and there's it's also jealousy over a romantic interest. Even though they were preaching free love, he didn't like that he was getting attention from one of the other girls there and thought that's meant to be my girl, you can fuck off. Exactly. So do we have that character's name who dogged them into the police? No, not off the top of my head. No, yeah, I can't. I don't think I've written it down either. Well, really, to be honest, not important. Uh, <laughs> I think, yeah, we should just, I guess, dive in and talk about this movie. I do want to actually quickly say when this movie was first released, it was met with a lot of controversy due to historical inaccuracies and that it took quite a few artistic liberties. So there's two main things I do want to mention. So apparently Jerry and his father Giuseppe did not actually share a prison cell like it's shown in the movie. And then Gareth Pierce, who was the solicitor and who was instrumental in investigating and preparing this case in the high court, apparently she was actually not present in the final court because due to British legal systems, this could only be done by a trial barrister. And so at that time, the trial barrister was Michael Mansfield, but you don't see him presenting the case in the end. There'll be a lot of exposition to pop something. Well, see, this, and now this is what I wanted to say. I think, you know, when I was younger, I would always get annoyed when a film wasn't pure or truthful to the source material. But then when you realize that adapting a story into a film is a completely different beast within itself. And you, 
How it's do I... spiritually true. It's trying to get across the themes and message of the story without having to be literal. Yeah, and you want to tell the story in the most constructive and engaging way possible. And sometimes that means cutting out a few characters and... Or, or, or amalgamating characters or changing things slightly so well, it's more exactly. compelling than two men rotting in jail cells for 15 years separately. Exactly. And the, what I do want to say is that... I always say what I do want to say. What I'm I do want to say. Oh, what I'm I don't say this. Say. So, I actually liked that in the film, Jerry and Giuseppe are sharing a jail cell because it gives the audience to see like their relationship dynamic evolve and it, it makes you more emotionally engaged in their relationship and what's happening without them in sharing that prison cell i don't think you would really get the nuance of their relationship well also spoiler alert when giuseppe passes away you wouldn't have that emotional connection that needs to be built over that time that i suppose was in the book potentially unpacked further through people being able to gain empathy and understanding for each other by both suffering separately this movie needed to narratively tie that together so it made sense to put them in the same space 100 percent, and a very very beautiful scene probably the most beautiful scene in the whole film was when giuseppe does pass away the other inmates are quite upset and in a display of respect or honor or love they all go to their cell windows and they burn a piece of paper or newspaper and they throw it out the window and then there's just this beautiful shot of all these fireballs falling out sort of helicoptering like helicoptering out. towards the ground and it's quite can i ask you a beautiful question? yeah are you like me did you cry on those scenes i did Okay, so I'm so happy you brought up crying. I don't know if you know about this about me, but I cry a lot in movies. Yes, quite. And I was you quite shocked. <laughs> I cry in car commercials. No, I don't. I was quite shocked because this film actually made me realize that during this whole entire podcast season, I have not yet cried in a film. This was the first film that I cried in that we've reviewed. And I was actually really shocked when I realized that. And... That's beautiful. Yeah, in the end, when Jerry Conlon is proved innocent, he says, I'm a free man and I'm going out the front door. David, I lost it crying. Yeah. I was in tears. Like, I was crying, crying and crying and crying. And my partner, like, I looked over at him and he just looked at me and he was like, um... Really? Because I was on the phone to him a moment ago and I didn't say this because I didn't want to spoil this, our natural chemistry we have during the yeah. podcast, but he told me he cried heaps during this film. What? Yeah. No, he did not. He did. Are you fucking with me? No. I never see my partner cry, so I feel like I was robbed of an experience. What? He cried in the film. That's what he said. He didn't tell me. I mean, maybe that's something to discuss at Oh home. my God, I will. I'll be discussing it with him as soon as I see him. Jesus Christ. What <laughs> all these secrets in a relationship you need <laughs> trust <gasps> jesus um i want to talk about the soundtrack please i love the soundtrack the soundtrack is so fucking cool at the beginning of the film it opens with this bono and gavin friday collab and the song is called in the name of the father it was written and for the movie it was written for the movie okay. i loved it okay i'm all here for um I irish pride loved it it was a bit of jumping in the swimming pool in the cold and like bono being splashed in my face at the start of this film was i mean you know respect to him a little bit intense for me. I was like, oh, Bono, oh, whoa, we're here, we're an island. But, um, oh, no, I, I, I enjoyed it. this. And Sinead O'Connor also does a song. Sinead O'Connor? 
Sinead O'Connor. Yes, Sinead O'Connor. We're leaving that in there. <laughs> no, we're not. Fuck you. Sinead. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Um, yeah, I just want to say powerful film. And one thing I do really appreciate is when you first picked out the theme, I was a bit like, oh, I'm not interested in doing that. However, you wanted unicorns. <laughs> I wanted unicorns. However, I appreciate this theme so much because it made me watch films that I wouldn't have necessarily watched anytime soon or may have never watched. I think I would have eventually watched In the Name of the Father. So had you not seen this film before? Because you never. Sort of confidently recommended it. But that's because of the serendipity you mentioned earlier. Yeah. About, Amazing. Yeah. So I'm... Okay. I wait, loved it. Can I ask you a question? At yeah. the beginning of the podcast, I, this may have been for our listeners, but yeah. you asked me a little bit about Northern and Southern Ireland. Yeah. Did it hinder watching this film not necessarily being super familiar with Irish politics? That's a really good question. Uh, at the beginning of the film, my partner did turn around and he said, I don't get it. I, not that I have a lot of knowledge of the history and the IRA, I did a little, when I say a little bit of research, I just knew that, you know, the Irish Republic army, they were fighting against the English. So I, and they were like a rebel army. They were seen as terrorists, even though yeah, I personally so think they the were. Bones of it. Yes, I understood, bones I understood that, you know. Oh my God, you were about to get give a very strong political opinion about the IRA. Well, no, I was going to say they were freedom fighters. Okay. Where was I? Yeah, so I didn't have much knowledge about the history, but no, I don't think it did hinder my viewing of this I, I was film. Just, I was just curious. Uh, Favourite scene? I think it's what I mentioned with yeah, the... But I should, be I should be asking you this, because this is the film I picked. I know, but I am interested to hear your thoughts on this film, because, again, um, I, a bit like you, I never would have watched this film if we had not... I'm really happy. I, I think I'm glad that, I watched it. I think this is what this podcast is all about. I'm glad that this podcast brought us to this movie, because, I don't know, it just... Like go, not, go, go watch In the Name of the Father. You, yeah, you, you'll go, be glad go, you saw it. Yeah, I, I'm really glad I watched it. I it, it is definitely a movie that I will be buying on Blu-ray. I was so depressed halfway through. Like, I was just like, yeah. everyone's so powerless. The system really can just fuck you up. But, I mean... It, it, was, but, it yeah. was quite terrifying seeing these victims just how young they were as well like that yeah. 17 year old girl and how your whole life can be flipped upside down and 15 years like i mean thank god it was nothing more but i just i i hope these guys had a payout i don't know i really hope they had a good payout i don't know that they would and, well, maybe there's something we can look up and i think jerry conlon he he passed away at 60 in 2014 it's not that old it's not that old especially when you've had 15 years of your life spent in prison i i, I don't know it's this movie is very very powerful and I'm quite surprised that it, it doesn't have the impact that Shawshank Redemption has. I don't know. I guess Shawshank Redemption, it's based off a Stephen King short story. And it, it was, it took a big I hit at pop culture. Whereas this film, I feel like it, it is, don't, don't get me wrong, it's critically acclaimed and well received, but it doesn't have that impact on pop culture. Maybe because it is based on a true story and it does have such heavy themes. Also, and you're probably going to say it doesn't need to no, I wasn't have gonna, an impact on pop culture. I mean, I wasn't actually going to oh, say okay. that. Even though there are a lot of Irish dysphoria in the States, mm. I think that because this is so localised to a particular part of the world that is not America, definitely makes it harder. I, I listened to a few other people review and speak to both the movies we were talking about today oh well and all of the ones 
that were American criticized at some point the audio and it came down to them not understanding the accents. And I think that- I think I watched this with subtitles, yeah. I mean, they, that's a solution, I guess. Yeah. I didn't think of that. But I, you know, I, it's interesting, I think that, yeah, um, maybe not necessarily being able to understand, I, I mean, I was gonna call it a regional accent, but it is a capital of a country. But anyway, I don't know. I don't know. I'm yeah, the playing. accent was really authentic. And yeah, all around the acting was amazing. I loved Emma Thompson as Gareth Pierce. She made me cry in that court scene. She did it with such, I don't know, it was weird. It, she was quite subtle. She wasn't quite out loud and in your face, but she just still, it was, it was still so powerful, well, even though it was so understated. That's just it. She had that confident undercurrent of someone who knows their shit and is getting on with their work. She wasn't flustered. She, especially when everyone was having their emotional responses to her being there or because no, really wanted her there to start no, off with. and they were putting so many obstacles in her way from- well, but, but, but both were originally. Even Jerry didn't want her there to start off with, and then obviously the prosecution and police wanted nothing to do with her. Everyone's like, this has just been wrapped up tidily and I don't want to touch this. When she was in prison, they didn't want her to go upstairs to see Giuseppe. Everyone was sort of oh, I... walls around her and she was doing her best just to make sure that justice is done properly without getting the only scene you see her get emotional is in that last scene where she is tr she's, she's seeing the window of opportunity closing for these people and she just knows if she doesn't say her piece and get all the information out there to as many people as possible so they can't sweep it under the rug, it it's going to be too late for them. When Giuseppe passed away, oh my goodness, because you just see this father deteriorating and getting sick. He's unable to walk down the stairs anymore to the main food hall. It's just... It is so tragic, but the relationship between how it was portrayed between Giuseppe and his son, Jerry, was just, oh, it was so beautiful. For me, this is probably the most strong or, I don't know, the, just the depiction of the, the father and son relationship in this film for me was very powerful. I don't think I've seen something quite like it depicted in other films. I don't know. That scene where Jerry is talking about how he, when he was a child, he, he said, hey, um, Duh, I used to like hold your hand and you'd smell like tobacco. So whenever I'd smell tobacco, I felt safe. I don't know, it was just, it was so beautiful. And it was such a journey from when they first arrive in jail together. Jerry kind of, I guess, has a mental breakdown and he starts to criticize and ridicule his father for everything that his father had done wrong in his life. Well, he was essentially, there was a level of blaming his father. Oh, of course. I wouldn't have come to London if it wasn't for the fact that I didn't feel happy and valued where I was, which I don't think was necessarily valid, but I think that was very authentic and honest. Yeah, it was just that transformation and yeah, well, and I mean, should we mention why Jerry goes to England or does it really not matter? I guess it really doesn't matter. Um, I mean, well, long story short, Jerry ends up going to England and it's his parents' wishes because he's kind of just not doing anything with his life. He's stealing scrap metal. Yeah, well, what would you give this movie out of five stars? I'll give it 3.7. Oh, okay. Close to a four. I'm tempted to give it a four. Yeah, I'm giving it a four. All right, I'll give it a four. I'm, right, you've, you've convinced me. Yeah, it's... It's been a few days since I watched it, but I'll give it a four. It, you know, yeah. it's stuck with me. Yeah, no, same. I... Yeah, I really want our listeners to it's watch this movie. It's left me with a really uneasy feeling, of course, but that's because, you know, oh, you definitely. know it's a true story and you know a great injustice has been done, one that continues to constantly happen. Yeah. Should we go to the next film? Absolutely. I think it's good maybe we're... Actually, I don't even know if we're going to be ending it on a light note, to be honest. We'll so be they're both quite heavy films. A note. I think we'll be op uh, finishing it on an optimistic note because mm. that is part of what I take away from this film. Go ahead. Breakfast on Pluto is a 2005... 
It's listed as a comedy, but I guess that it's also slightly a drama. It's directed by Neil Jordan and is based on the 1998 novel of the same name by Patrick McCabe. The film stars Cillian Murphy as a transgender foundling, searching for her mother who leaves Ireland after illegitimately having the child to the town's father, Liam. Father with a capital F. Well, the priest. The priest, exactly. <laughs> Love it. The film is divided into 36 chapters, so despite the fact that this film goes for over two hours, for me that actually made it feel quite fast-paced because they felt like digestible chunks. In the fictional town of Tyrolin, bordering Northern Ireland, Patricia Kittenbraden comes of age in the 1970s. She leaves her Irish town in part to look for her mother and in part because the fact that she's transgender is beyond the town's understanding. It's very small, it's very colloquial, it's very traditional, it's very Irish. She's taken in by a rock band, falls for the lead singer, has a brush with the IRA, is arrested by the London police, works in a peep show, and poses as a survey researcher for a phone company. Much like the previous film, the fact that she leaves her small Irish town to move to London puts her at risk of being persecuted for being potentially an IRA terrorist. She finds herself in a situation where a bomb goes off, and because she is transgender, people assume that it is some sort of disguise. Thankfully, because we watched the previous film, I understood the context of the newly introduced seven-day law, where the police in the UK were allowed to hold quote-unquote suspects to try and quote-unquote coerce a confession out of them. A lot of this film made sense after watching In, In the, the Name, Name of the Father, Father wow. because it drew a line under her experiences when she came to London and did many things, including working as a womble, mm. uh, working as a magician's assistant for someone that it was sort of framed she was having a romantic relationship with, but at the end of the day was obviously exploiting and humiliating her. Bertie. Bertie, exactly. Oh, but I think Bertie also loved them for them. Absolutely not. I oh. really, I really did not like the line where he's saying to her, oh, but if I was to fall in love with someone, it would be a woman like you. So sort of disaffirming her identity. And then the fact that there is constantly that part of the magic routine where he puts her under a trance and says, there's your mother, there's your mother, literally mocking one of the core reasons that she went to London in the first place and humiliating her for actually looking for love. Yeah, I found that incredibly condescending. Yeah, and Kitten has a bit of an obsession with finding their mother because Kitten has a really good childhood friend named Lawrence, um, who is played by Seamus Riley, who's Down syndrome, and they Kitten had a really good relationship with Lawrence's father, and Lawrence's father is who actually told Kitten that, oh yeah, your mother reminded me so much of the actress Mitzi Gaynor. Which means that I think that Kitty had, uh, Kitten had a very romanticized idea of who her mother was. Of course. Which towards the end of the film you realize that it's her relationships she has with her friends and her actual father who does come looking for her in London and confesses that I am not just father Patrick, but I'm also your father. In not so many words, in, yeah. in a scene that mirrors the earlier scenes father of Father Patrick, no, his, fa his name is Father Liam. Sorry, Father Liam. Who's like also Liam played Neeson. by yeah, exactly. Liam Neeson. Liam Neeson. So random seeing Liam Neeson and Cillian Murphy in this 2005 film because- Because they both start in Batman. Man begins, yeah, exactly. yeah. Thank you, that was part of my trivia. Oh, really? Yeah. Um, Which one did they record first? Or film know. first, I should say, not record. They weren't doing a podcast. Oh, uh, no, absolutely. Well, that's exactly right. But no, I, I do like how um, Father- um, Liam. It's Father. not hard because they're played by Liam Neeson. I do like how Father Liam confesses to Kitten in the peep show through the little window. It sort of mirrors the confessional from earlier. Oh, when... yeah, because at the beginning, Kitten goes into the confessional to speak to Father Liam. 
Absolutely. And yeah. So this is sort of the mirror of that, which I thought was really beautiful. Um, I, so I, you I, should explain that Kitten actually does approach Father Liam in the beginning of the film to say, hey, I know that yeah, I'm your, your daughter. Kit, yeah, because... Kitten makes it quite explicitly known from the beginning. Something I really love about Kitten's character is Kitten is incredibly optimistic through the entire film. Yeah. Obviously believes in the best of people. Sometimes I wasn't sure whether this was cynical or not, but the fact that Kitten keeps finding herself in situations where she's being exploited by people makes me believe to some extent that she genuinely sees the best in them and that is just exploited in the end. But also Kitten is very confident in herself. Even, I, yeah. even the scene in the beginning when she was young and caught wearing her sister's clothing and the mother's furious and scrubbing her, saying, if you make a fool of yourself like that, I'm going to parade you down the street. And she just turns around and smiles and says, you promise? Like, I, I, I just, yeah, I love how unapologetically exactly. um, Kitten was. Like, they were just themselves, even though the odds were against them and they were facing daily prejudice and especially daily in a, disdain. Especially in a, in a place that is so conservative. I also think that it's appropriate that Quaid and I acknowledge that films being made about transgender people today it is more appropriate for a transgender actor or actress or person to play them. That said, we often talk in this podcast about certain characters and metaphors being used for representations of the LGBTQI community. This is a film that was actually addressing those issues in a time when it was not as popular. The conversations weren't as nuanced, so the fact that apparently Killian Murphy really pushed for this film to be made, the fact that everyone was so invested in getting this story out there and doing it in such a constructive, positive way, I do think is a step in the right direction. I also listened to a few reviews by people from the trans community about this movie today, because mm. I was interested in their perspective, and all of them were incredibly positive about it. Well, look, I think also, you know, being cisgendered, what I can, though, give an opinion about is straight people playing gay characters. So personally for me, I don't really have an issue with it. However, what I do have an issue with is the hypocrisy. So it's kind of that saying that you can't be too gay to play straight, but you can be too straight to be get, play gay. Do you mean the other way around? Wait, let me start that again. No, no, uh, he, no we're not cutting that out. Oh, fuck off. So, <laughs> so I, I don't mind it except for the hypocrisy involved because often I see, you know, a lot of straight actors playing queer roles. However, However, vice versa, I don't see the same thing. I don't see many queer actors playing straight roles because it's almost like... You don't see many out queer actors playing. Well, straight. yes, but also it's kind of that thing about if you're too gay, then no, you can't play a straight character, but you can be as straight as you want and you can play gay. Oh, absolutely. That's the, that's the hypocrisy that I don't like. There's a huge amount of um, there's a huge amount of gatekeeping. I think that it's also, thankfully is moving to be an outdated attitude that is pushed by representation and agents to their clientele or to the actors that work for them. I think there is definitely a generation of actors just above us that are probably as gay as a tree full of monkeys, but they've been told, oh, if you want to make it in the States, you have to go get yourself a nice wife and look as straight as possible. But then if you ever play gay, everyone will applaud you and pat you on the back. I completely agree with you. I actually, as a queer man, I do not have an issue with straight people playing queer because again, no, also, sexual think... identity is a spectrum. So is expression yeah. and representation. So to say how much someone is allowed to veer into another area, I think is incredibly toxic and a dangerous place to go. But I completely agree as well that there is this huge problem with directors and casting directors and people going, oh, well, everyone knows that person's gay, so we can't cast them as a straight person. I don't think that that's acceptable. Uh, I want to talk about Kitten's character and Killian's betrayal. At first, when the movie started, I was kind of a bit confused about what Killian was doing. It kind of felt a bit 
of a farce. It felt a bit surface level, the acting. Also, they were putting on this voice that was quite breathy and exacerbated, and I didn't... I don't know, it didn't feel authentic. However, when the movie continued on, I started to, I guess, ease into the portrayal, and by the end of it, I was, you know, fully engaged in the journey, and I believed that this was a fully fleshed out character, but not so much at the beginning. I, I agree. I think that a lot of this film is incredibly, like, it, I feel like metaphorically it's like someone's taken the colour dial and pumped it up. The music, the acting, the, the, the jumping from scene to scene, it is a very vibrant, I think that's the right way to use it. So when... Vibrant's the right so word. So when Killian yeah. comes in and there's that incredibly, like, jazzy turns of phrases that she's using and the fact... I think that we are so familiar now with Killian Murphy separate to this role, there is that moment that we need to calibrate ourselves to accept him playing this role, especially now that our eyes have been opened to the fact that this is not necessarily always the most tasteful way of casting a transgender character. However, like you said, it did not take me long to fall into believing and reading and understanding this character the way it was intended, and I think that that is, to Killian's credit, yeah. the amount of work that he was willing to put in to inhabit this role. Definitely, and I think the main aspect of the film that I love the most is how within this film they present the main protagonist from the LGBT community as someone that isn't a victim. Kitten was like the captain of their own ship and I didn't feel like the life was happening to them. They yep. were they were embracing life and going on this journey and it was really refreshing to see because so many films about queer characters it's always very tragic, it's always very sad, it's always very depressing whereas this film it was like, no, like, just because this character is transgender, it doesn't mean that we have to, like, plump all this, um, uh, what's it called? Plump all this traumatic bullshit on it. So, in that sense, it wasn't tokenistic. Where it does get a little bit tokenistic, but at the same time, they are following the story that it's adapted by from the novel, was the the sex work part. Because I feel like that's such a tokenistic thing of, oh, the, the, the main queer character, okay, they get into sex work now. Yeah, well, look, to, yeah, to continue with Kitten, I also, one issue I did have with the film, though, is that they kind of came across a bit like a Mary Sue. So I felt like this was a character that was seamlessly going through all these events where all these characters were gravitating towards them and just so happened to help them out and be a convenient plot uh, device for the next. You think that she was almost choked by a John in a car? Was it con was something good happening to her? No, no. Aside from that, no. But uh, aside from that, yes. I think that if you follow anyone around, they're going to come into other people's orbits and experiences rather than being left alone. And sometimes they seem beneficial, and then they turn out not being so beneficial. I think what I'm even, trying to even even okay, her, what I'm trying to say is. The things that were that Kitten was doing and getting themselves involved in, I would have imagined during that time, unfortunately, they would have been met with a lot more... Um, oh, it's hard to explain. I, they were just being... They were in some risk-taking situations where I was like, I don't think this is going to end well, but then it was all fine. But I understand also that they're trying to present this in a positive light. Also, the film doesn't exist if they just die in the first 15 minutes. Well, yes. Also, um, Kitten in the whole film, it was interesting because they're a bit... In their own world, their own like fantasy. Uh, there is an element of a veneer there that you can actually see at one point as a coping mechanism. When the, oh, one hundred percent. When the police yeah. picks her up and she's joking around, going, "Oh, are you my John? Or, you know, what's yeah, going on? You're moving me on." 
because Kitten's reaction to things is very sort of like, oh, darling, oh, we're talking like this now. But there's a moment where well, they don't like to take life seriously. Well, also, or face the seriousness of situations of that course. they're very well aware of are huge and dangerous situations. When she when he turns to her and says, you're going to die out here. And then she breaks that act for a second and turns to him and goes, I know. You know, there's yeah. that moment of sudden vulnerability going, okay, well, fuck, yes, I guess I have to face the thing. Also, the moment after Lawrence is killed. I know. When, when oh. she, she cracks Can you explain it, how Lawrence passes away? Yeah, so Lawrence, there is an IRA suspected car bombing. So the military come in to detonate it uh, safely. Uh, because they have the bomb disposal squad, there is a robot that comes out that they use. And Lawrence is obsessed with Daleks runs out and goes, oh my goodness, it's a Dalek, and yeah. runs towards it as they detonate the bomb. It's really sad. It's super sad. And then after that, the kitten goes, fuck it, and finds Billy Hatchet's guns that he is hiding for the IRA and just throws them all in the river going, yeah. this is ridiculous. Which is the point in the movie where Billy realizes how dangerous and fucked up that situation is and in tears leaves kitten going, I'm, I can't even tell you where I'm going. It's too dangerous. I'm out of here. If you're smart, you should do the same thing. No, exactly. So one interesting aspect of this film, the incorporation of the CGI birds and also the dream sequences in which Kitten is imagining themselves as a spy, um, you know, disarming all the goons with their Chanel number five and um, daydreaming about how they were conceived. Even though those scenes were quite out of place and you know what, unnecessary, it did give the film some flavour, some noir. Is that even a word? Some, some, I don't know. It, I, I do want it's a bit of a catch-22, it's a bit of a paradox, because on one hand I like it, and then on one hand I really don't like it. <laughs> I didn't have a problem with any of it, except, like, I thought the rest of it added to the magical realism of it. The part where she's fantasizing about her conception is appropriate, because she's actually writing in English class and yeah. gets in trouble for writing that. Also, the part with the Chanel number no. 5 is also when they're trying, the police are trying to get a confession out of her, and she's making fun of them by saying, yes, I'm actually an undercover agent, and I fight with my Chanel number no. 5. So all of that made sense. Except for the CGI birds with the The subtitles. CGI birds just were a little bit too far for me because they were mm. unnecessary. They felt like going, oh, we're a little bit worried our audience is dumb, so we really need to spell it out and to shoot <laughs> an Oscar Wilde quote in there that probably didn't have to be in there at the end. But I mean, that's my main criticism with the styling of the film. Well, one more criticism I have is that for a film that is literally about the reunion between a mother and daughter, there is no reunion. Like, in the end, Kitten decides to not tell their mother who they are. Yeah, it's like, I didn't spend two hours and ten minutes not to see this reunion between Kitten and her mother. That's what the whole film is about. That's what you frame the whole core of this film about, and you don't even address it in the end. I was, I felt a bit robbed. Can that I? That I didn't like. I do understand that in the end, what they're trying to say is, well, Kitten realized that they that she had what she needed right in front of her which was her father priest and her friends and that's all the love she needed she didn't need to reach out but i don't know i was still i think that, yeah. i think that you've sort of contradicted yourself a little bit there because oh. before you were saying that she's a bit of a mary sue going through and everything works out for her but part of the thing i enjoy about this movie is that it sort of wrestles with the idea that life is messy and untied and it finishes in this ambiguous space where you can see her talking to her half-brother and you don't really know whether that relationship gets formed or not at any point. But to your point, she does realise one of the main themes is that 
yeah, it's those, even though you may fetishize or fantasize about an alternate version of your life or someone who is the person in your life that got away, that everything would have been perfect or ideal if you knew. The phantom lady. The phantom lady, who she ends up taking on that identity for identifying as the phantom lady to her half-brother as a bit of a joke. Yeah, it ends up being, she realizes that she has family through her... Through her best friend. Yeah, through her friend, Ely, and through... Father Liam. Oh my God, you've been so bad with the name today um yeah through <laughs> through father liam um and yeah it, it's this the fact that life is not about necessarily having tidy endings or being able to be saved by one person and i think the reality especially when she met her mother while being undercover as the telephone lady and realizing that this person has their whole life separate to them and that she should focus for now at least on the same thing and that there are those relationships there that are worth fostering and looking after even though they might not be perfect yeah definitely and it's interesting because when you first picked this film the first thing i do which i know that you would absolutely hate is i like to see what it got on imdb and rotten tomatoes so when i first saw that it got 54 percent on rotten tomatoes i was very apprehensive into going into this film and i was like of course david picked this movie he loves movies that no one has heard about and has an average of a 50 or 60 so percent approval film. rating on rotten tomatoes however i was actually quite shocked because after watching the movie i was like yeah these reviews don't really reflect you know the the good quality of this film and then i did a bit of research and read some of the reviews and to be honest i was quite disgusted in what I was reading. I, I, I understand that this film was released in 2005. Doesn't matter. Doesn't but I matter. was fucking godsmacked. There was a Guardian review released in 2006 that literally misidentified Kitten, the protagonist, and said that they're a drag queen. Yeah. I was like, what the fuck? Like, how are you so stupid? And then there was another review I read on Rotten Tomatoes. It was a... It was a a user review, not a critic review, saying, yeah, like, I don't usually like to watch movies where the main protagonist is trans, but yeah, this wasn't too bad. And I, I was like, I'm sorry, but these reviews are purely transphobic. And I, I think it's really unfair because it's done a disservice to this film that did actually deserve a wider audience. And it's interesting when you see films like The Danish Girl or um, Dallas Buyers Club, where Eddie Redmayne and Jared Leto were praised. And I mean, those films only came out, what, like five, six years later. So it just shows you how much shit can change in such a short time. I mean, thank God, now that we've gotten to this new place that we're in, I mean, we've still got such a long way to go, but yeah. I also think that that is, there is that weird dangerous territory, because I definitely think that the Danish girl is what we were talking about before, Oscar Trap, like someone yes, going, look, how, look how brave and great I am, can I please have all the awards now, because it is something that became acceptable to talk about, there were of people course. jumping on that. Whereas. As Same as Jared Leto. But yeah. as you mentioned, because this film came out earlier before that was the attitude, I do think that it was an artistic decision made by the actors and the people producing it rather than them thinking they were getting onto a trend. Because like you said, the film was not widely accepted because, you know, the scene where her and Billy are singing Sand? How does it go? Well, it's, it's the scene where they're singing to each other on stage. And oh, then yes, you have yes. The, the start, the, at the very beginning of the audience, there's people sort of dancing in time to the movie, and it pans back, and you realise there's just all the people cringing and looking furious, and the majority of the crowd yeah. is just confused and angry. I feel like that was the reception of this film. There were the people at the front of the crowd that appreciated it and understood it, and then everybody else just sort of screwed up their face going, I don't get it, why is Killian Murphy wearing a dress? So, as you said, I believe this film will gain more appreciation 
over time. It's I'm a hoping bit, it's it a bit of a gem. I think. I, I reckon Rotten Tomatoes. If anyone working for Rotten Tomatoes is hearing this, you need to go back and fix the critic consensus of this film because I'm sorry, but having a 54% approval rating is bullshit. Like, sort your shit out. Who was the most sympathetic character for you? Oh, I mean, Kitten, of course. Like, how, how could it be anyone else? You know what I mean? Well, it's interesting depending on your experience. You have Ely, who I feel like, you know, was a oh, character she's lovely. Was sympathetic. She's lovely. And the, her relationship with um, Kitten was beautiful. It was a... Absolutely. Yeah. And you also feel for her. You know, her partner gets shot in the head by the IRA. Because... I mean, he, he did get himself involved in a lot of um, intense shit. I, mean, I also think it's incredibly complicated. But yes, she, it but is. She, of but course. she found herself as a single mother. In a, but but again, had the support of the family around her that chose her and that she chose in the end. Okay. Do you think this film could be done today, or is there anything that aged in this film? I mean, I think we've already yeah, we've harped already on that. about what's not aged well in this film. Absolutely. What was your favourite scene? Because there's a visually a scene that sticks out in my mind just because it's sad but beautiful, and I'm wondering if it's stuck out to you at all. In terms of visuals, the part where Kitten is in the peep show booth, that scene straight away made me think of Paris, Texas. Yeah, like the pink light. We, well, just also the dynamic. Yeah, true. You have a familiar talking to you on the other side. Yeah. Revealing, well, not revealing, but talking about the past. So, and that's exactly what happens in Paris, Texas. So I could not get Paris, Texas out of my head when I saw that scene. Uh, the most beautiful scene... Uh, well, not beautiful, but like maybe visually. Visually dynamic, stunning. I, guess. I, I, I don't really. To be honest, I wasn't like nothing about the cinematography made me go like, oh my god! Like, what? What was it for you? The scene where she's dancing with the soldier in the bar and looks over her shoulder and she's imagining that she's dancing with Lawrence and it's really touching and beautiful. With Lawrence, no, with Billy Hatchet. No, she asks him to say Billy, but then. Oh, sorry. But then. As she yeah. turns and sees herself in the mirror, in slow motion, the mirrored wall explodes from the bomb and you see everyone moving as the fire comes through. Very see, sad. unfortunately, I didn't get to see the beautiful slow motion because oh. the version of this film that I saw was buffering every two minutes because I couldn't... This film was not available anywhere to rent or buy online. Which to, was really frustrating. To your point, this film needs to be more accessible. It was very hard to find. It doesn't even have a Blu-ray release. Which is ridiculous because I remember, again, when I first saw this film, I was a teenager and it was being shown quite regularly on SBS, thank That's God. That's so interesting. Back when SBS used to take more risks. I love the outfits also. Kitten had an amazing oh, wardrobe. It was very iconic. There's so many things I would I would wear. Quite after watching both these movies, I'm thinking that maybe flares. I want flares. I want bloody flares. I want to pretend that I am in denial and living in the 70s. <laughs> Can I give you two fun facts of the ones? Yes. Just because these ones I found interesting. The title of the film and the novel it's based on is taken from a song, Breakfast on Pluto, by Don Partridge. The song is used as part of the soundtrack and Leon Cummingham's quote a few lines including the title from the lyrics. Just very quickly, I think the title is important because it sounds super random and I actually forgot its relevance. When his character, who's the biker, is talking to them, they're all smoking weed. Wait, rewind. Who are you talking about? Who's Le the Liam biker? Cunning Liam Cunningham. You know, at the very beginning where they're denied going into the dance because yes. they weren't going to let someone with Down syndrome and a trans person into the bar. Yeah. Then the bikers come through and yes. the kitten goes, can we get a lift with you? 
and they all end up sitting around smoking weed. Yeah. Liam Cunningham is sitting there and he's getting high and he's talking about. And is he one of the bikies? Yes. Yeah. And he quotes Breakfast on Pluto and references how Pluto is sort of this dark, mysterious, removed god because Pluto is um, no longer a planet. Well. <laughs> Because Pluto is Hades. Hades is Hades. So it's sort of this what seemed to be like fearsome dark place, yeah. but is actually quite warm. And also the idea of breakfast on Pluto, he wants to experience, meet, and see and be exposed to as many different people through the world as he can come into contact with, which I think sets up Kitten for her experiences in this film where she comes into contact with and experiences a, a range of colourful people. That was a bit of a long one. The other no, ones are super short. Yeah, that's good. The schoolmaster in whose class Kitten is writing the essay about her conception. The teacher in the classroom is played by the author that wrote the book that the movie's based oh, on. Oh, wow. So that's fun. Um, also, my last fact is uh, both Neil Jordan and Killian Murphy described the filming location for the caravan in the quarry as a rather sinister place. And there are rumours oh. that many dead bodies were buried there during the troubles. Oh, no way. Because mm. I was about to say, when you were talking about the most beautiful scenes, I did love all the scenes with the caravan by the cliff, by the I'm, sea. I'm, it was beautiful. So now that you've said that, I oh, I feel a bit... Yeah, anyway, what would you give the film out of five stars? I want to give it a four, or at least a three a point... A four? No, oh, 3.7. 3.7. Really? You'd give the film a, like a 7.5 out of 10. Jesus, okay. Um, yeah, I, yeah that's, that's a better way of putting it. 7.5 out of 10. Well, yeah, a, a 7.5 out of 10 is a 3.75. Because it's a good film. Like, I, I really... Yeah, I, I look, I'd give this film a straight 3.5 out of 5. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. 7 stars out of 10. That's yeah. a good score. Oh, I enjoyed yeah, it. Yeah, definitely. It was it was beautiful. Like like I said before, I'm re I really appreciate this episode because we've reviewed films that I wouldn't have necessarily watched anytime soon, and I'm happy I had the experience of watching them. I'm happy that I saw Breakfast on Pluto. Would I buy a Blu-ray copy like I did for In the, In the Name of the Father? Probably not. Well, but you, I'm you still. Can't. Well, yeah. Oh, triggered. Anyway, um, to all our listeners, thank you so much for you know, who's stayed with us since the first episode. It's really exciting because next week is our 12th episode and it's going to be our last episode for the season. Yeah, so it's it's very, very exciting. So as everyone knows, next week we are heading into a month with a lot of ho-ho-hos. More so than usual, and I'm not just talking about Quaid in those short, short shorts. Yes, everyone, it is December, the festive season of Halloween. No, um, it is Christmas. Gold it jing, is, gold jing, gold jing. It, yes, it, we are going into Tinseltown. Kwanzaa. Kwan, Kwan, what's Kwanzaa? I'll tell you after. Anyway, yes, it is the month of Christmas. So I think it's without saying what our theme will be for our final episode of Cinephile Paradiso season one. So please catch us then. And thank you for listening tonight. Can you, you say can... that sentence again? That was the most confusing thing you've ever said. No, it wasn't. You, I think you just blanked out, to be honest. You said without saying it next season of what that uh, is going to be, I guess thank you and we'll see you. Oh more. my God. Without stating the obvious, join us next week for our festive season Season episode that concludes our first season of Cinephile Paradiso. Is that better? That's perfect. You can follow us on Instagram at Cinephile Paradiso Podcast. And if you're interested in having a perv at the beautiful white thighs I see sitting before me, you can follow Quaid at Quaid Kirchner. And if you would like to follow David, you can follow him at David Charles Collins on Instagram. Thank you so much, everyone. Love you. Take care. Garnier. Thank you.
Al Paradiso is recorded on the land of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. We wish to acknowledge the traditional custodians of the land and pay respects to their elders, past, present and emerging. Always was, always will be Aboriginal land. Thank you.